Well, once again, Happy New Year's. If you don't know me, my name is Mitchell Slater. It is my privilege to welcome us as a church into the 2023rd year since the birth of our Lord. Now, the new year, it's a, it's a time where we often um, think about resolutions, right? We, we think through changes that we want to make in our lives over the upcoming year. It's a time where we get to reflect and kind of rethink and reset the direction of our lives. But let's be honest. How successful are we at actually keeping our New Year's resolutions? Sometimes, but really, how often do we keep them? I mean, how many of us have resolved to make changes in our lives and we feel great about them at first, but then how do we feel when the next January rolls around? Maybe not as good. And coming off the holiday season and thinking through resolutions for the upcoming year, how many of you all find this to be pretty exhausting? Recently, I discovered some, some journal entries from Samuel Johnson. I want to see if you can relate. Samuel Johnson was a literary giant of the 18th century, and he was a devout Anglican Christian. And there's an interesting pattern that develops in his journal entries throughout the decades, really. Here's a few entries. In the year 1738, he wrote, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. <laughs> so his big struggle was with sloth, with laziness, especially with waking up early to pray. That was his main struggle. So in 1757, that's 19 years later, he says, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. So he's still struggling. Four years later, in 1761, <laughs> I have resolved until I have resolved that I am afraid to resolve again. In 1764, he resolves to rise early, not later than six if I can. One year later, he wrote, I purpose to rise at eight. <laughs> Because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie until two. Ten years later, at 1775, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. Finally, in 1781, three years before his death, he wrote, I will not despair. Help me. Help me, oh my God. Can any of you relate to Mr. Johnson? You resolve year after year, maybe even decade after decade, you resolve to grow as a Christian, but it just feels like your life is spinning on a hamster wheel and you're going nowhere. It can become tiring and overwhelming and just exhausting. 
This morning in Luke chapter 6, and you can go ahead and open your Bibles there, Jesus is inviting us to experience true and lasting rest for our souls. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to see that this passage isn't commanding you to do anything. It's actually inviting you to find rest for your soul in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, that means you've already found rest in Jesus. It means that as Christians, we've stopped trying to earn God's favor through our own works, and we have come to rest in the finished work of Christ. So this morning, my prayer for you is that your experience of that rest would grow deeper. It's like after a, a night's sleep, sometimes you're well-rested, and other times you feel like you didn't get any rest, although you slept the same amount of time, right? Sometimes you have a deep sleep, other times a light sleep. And I want the truth of this passage to help move you into a deeper experience of the rest that's already yours in Christ. So let's read Luke chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. These are the very words of the one true and living God. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priests to eat and also gave it to those with him. <clears throat> And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. <clears throat> but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. These are the words of God. Let's go to him in prayer now for help. Father of mercies, God of all comfort, we have come into your presence as your people gathered now around your word and table. We ask that you would refresh our spirits through this blessed gospel of your son. Please lead us now into deeper knowledge, into a, a fuller experience of the Sabbath rest that Christ has secured for his people, a rest that will last forever. Lord, we ask for you to do this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. In this passage, we see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath so we can experience true and lasting rest. 
Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath so we can experience true and lasting rest. And as we break down our passage, we see that Jesus is the defender of rest in verses 1 through 5, and Jesus is the giver of rest in verses 6 through 11. He's the defender of rest and the giver of rest. So let's first look at Jesus as the defender of our rest. Now in verses 1 through 5, we see what should have been a pretty unremarkable Saturday in the life of Jesus and his disciples. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. While he was going through the grain fields, his, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So this was the seventh day, Saturday, the, the Sabbath. This was the holy day of rest for the Jewish people. And as the disciples were walking through the field, they started just eating some of the grain. And this simple action just completely sets the Pharisees off. Why? Right, why were they so bothered by the disciples' seemingly innocent snack? Well, they said, what you're doing isn't lawful. But it's important to note that they weren't breaking any part of God's law. Moses actually gave the gleaning laws. If you remember back to our study in Ruth, and those gleaning laws allowed this very behavior. If you're passing through a field, you could actually take some of the grain and, and eat it for yourself. And eating like this didn't break the Sabbath. You could eat on the Sabbath. They're actually commanded to feast on the Sabbath. So the disciples were being completely lawful. Why were the Pharisees so upset? Well, they're upset not because the disciples were breaking God's law, but because they were breaking the Pharisees' law. See, later, when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for holding the traditions of men over and against the law and the commandments of God, he has a very specific thing in mind. About 200 years after Jesus, several Jewish rabbis would come together and, and put together a collection of oral traditions known as the Mishnah. Everyone say Mishnah. Mishnah. Well done. You're speaking excellent Hebrew. The Mishnah wasn't new. It was a collection of traditions that had been around for centuries and sometimes even millennia. And in the Mishnah, we get a glimpse at the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath. They had added 39 requirements to God's law to make extra sure no one accidentally worked on the Sabbath. For instance, you couldn't start a fire on the Sabbath. You couldn't put out a fire. You couldn't write anything down. You couldn't erase anything. You couldn't tie a knot or untie a knot. You can't cook. You couldn't bake. You couldn't boil water. And you couldn't be involved with harvesting and threshing, which in the Pharisees' perspective is exactly what the disciples of Jesus were doing right here. They were picking some of the grain. That's harvesting. They were rubbing it together in their hands. That's threshing. That's the problem. 
So they weren't breaking God's law at all. They were being lawful. But they were breaking the Pharisees' precious, closely held traditions. Now, does the Pharisees' version of the Sabbath sound at all relaxing to you? It's not. It doesn't sound restful at all. They had turned God's appointed day of rest into their own day of restlessness. It's like, have you ever gone on a vacation and when you come back, you're just as tired as you were when you left? You moms know what this is like, right? For moms, you're always parenting. You're just parenting at a different place. But you're still tired. Well, that's what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath day. In their obsession to make sure people rested from physical labor, they turned the Sabbath into a day of exhausting, grinding religious labor. And that's what you get with religiosity and moralism and legalism. Now, note I didn't say religion and morality and lawfulness. Again, they're not breaking God's law. God's commandments are not burdensome. But with legalism, with man-made traditions, all you get is an exhausting, never-ending to-do list. Nothing's ever good enough. There's always more to do. It just never ends. Again, think about our, our New Year's resolutions. Maybe you've resolved this year to spend more time in prayer. If you have, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have a desire to pray more because you love Christ and you have found joy in Christ, that is fantastic. If you want to discipline yourself for godliness so that you're communing with the living God, that's excellent. But in that good resolution, if legalism is in the driver's seat of your heart, that resolution will leave you worn out and stressed out and burnt out. So we might start off and say, you know, I'm going to pray 15 minutes a day. I'm going to set apart 15 minutes to pray. But then you think, well, maybe that's not good enough. Let me bump that up to, to 30 minutes. I'll try to have 30 minutes carved out for prayer. But then maybe that's not quite doing it either. Maybe God expects more from you. So I'll pray 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening. But maybe I need to get those times up to an hour and add a, a time of prayer at noon. So three hours a day. Maybe that will finally please God. Maybe now I won't be a disappointment. On and on it goes. But no matter how much effort you put in to your resolutions for good, it's never enough. There's always more to do. The way of the Pharisees leads to stress and fatigue and weariness. But the way of Christ leads to true and lasting rest for our souls. And God's intention his intention for his people to rest goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Remember, in the Fourth Commandment, when God told his people to rest on the Sabbath day, he didn't give all those extra traditions. He just told them to rest. And Israel had been in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. And guess what? Slaves don't get a day off, ever. 
So imagine what it must have felt like to be told that God had just redeemed you and now he is ensuring that you get a day off of work guaranteed every single week. The Lord didn't want that day to be stressful. He intended it to be restful. And when he came to earth as a man, the Lord Jesus had that exact same desire to give rest to weary souls. So I want to ask you, would you describe your experience of the Christian life as stressful or restful? When you think about living this next year as a follower of Christ, do you have a sense of weariness or a sense of restfulness? If you just feel burdened and weighed down by the pressures of Christian discipleship, I want you to see that Jesus, he is not your slave master, always on you making sure you work, work, work. He is the defender of your rest. Look at this passage. As soon as his disciples were accused by the Pharisees, Jesus stepped in as their advocate, as their defender. Look back at verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those with him. So Jesus, he's referring back to an incident from 1 Samuel 21 where David, he was on the run, he was in desperate need, and he went into the tabernacle and ate the bread of the presence. And that bread, the law says, is only for the priests to eat. But David and his company, they were in a life-threatening situation, so they ate it. So yes, technically David broke the letter of the law. But in doing so, he upheld the spirit of the law by preserving the life of his men. David was a man after God's own heart, and because he knew the heart of God, his own heart was loving towards his men, He cared about his men who were in a life-threatening situation. And Jesus is the heir to David's throne. He is great David's greater son. And so the emphasis here really isn't just on this one singular incident with David. The emphasis is on the identity of Jesus. And that's exactly why he follows up his defense with these words. And he said to them, verse 5, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What's Jesus doing here? What did he mean by calling himself the Sabbath Lord? Well, remember, the Sabbath didn't begin on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. It actually began back in the Garden of Eden. After God had finished his whole work of creation in six days, he rested on the seventh and declared it holy. That was the institution of the Sabbath. So by saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is intentionally identifying himself as the God who created all things. 
Now, Jesus is a man. It's what we celebrated all throughout the Christmas season. But he's not a mere man. Jesus' own witness about himself is that he and the Father are one. And Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, as God come in human flesh, he is the defender of his people's rest. I mean, isn't this just beautiful and almost shocking that when God came among us as a human being, what did he do? He, he defended his disciples' enjoyment of a snack on their day off. He is so good. He is such a kind savior. Jesus defended their rest. And he defends your rest. Back when I worked for the bank, over the years, I, I had some managers who would make me feel guilty every time I took a day off. Have you guys had that kind of manager before? I also had other managers. Hey, Angie, I know you listen. <laughs> who made sure that I took time off. They made sure I didn't get burnt out. They were protective of my rest. And that's exactly how Jesus is, right? And hopefully you've had the privilege of having a boss like that. But if you haven't, Jesus is your Lord and he's the Lord of the Sabbath, the defender of your rest. That's who he is. He is the defender and the protector and the guardian of your rest in him. So if you feel the heavy load of all the things that you should be doing and all the things you should stop doing, if you hear the accuser's voice condemning you because of your failure and your inconsistency, then hear the voice of your Savior saying to you, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus is the defender of your rest and he's the giver of your rest. So look at verses six through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So Luke, he kind of fast forwards to another Sabbath day. We don't know how far in the future this is. But Jesus has another run in with the Pharisees. He's teaching in a synagogue and sitting there in the congregation is a man with a withered hand. Okay? And by this point, the Pharisees know that Jesus was both a healer of the sick and just a real troublemaker for their traditions. So they were watching him very closely. Again, according to their rules, 
Back to the Mishnah. It was actually okay to help an injured person on the Sabbath as long as their life was truly at risk. But if they weren't in any real immediate danger, then that medical aid or that healing should just wait until the next day. So again, to be clear, Jesus isn't breaking the law of God. Not at all. But he is very much intentionally breaking the traditions of men. So put yourself in the scene here. Put yourself in this synagogue. Jesus is up front teaching. Let's say the man with the withered hand, he's in the front row. The Pharisees are back in the back, probably with folded arms, just waiting and watching to see what Jesus does. And suddenly Jesus pauses his sermon and he calls the injured man to come up to the front. Now the room goes quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And everyone's eyes are just moving back and forth between Jesus and the man back to Jesus. But Jesus, he's not looking at the injured man at all. He's staring straight at the Pharisees, eye to eye. And he asks them a heart-piercing question. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And he's getting to the heart of what the Sabbath day is all about. In other words, really, how does God prioritize things? Does he care more about the strictness of the letter of the law in terms of our Sabbath keeping? Or does he care more about doing good and restoring life? So Jesus calls them out. He directly confronts them with this question and they have no response. Just crickets. So Jesus, he turns his attention back to the man and he heals his withered Hand, he restores it because Jesus is the giver of rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what he does. And the Sabbath day was always about God's good intention to give his people rest and relief and joy and delight and peace and freedom and restoration. And Jesus, he's the one that the Sabbath was pointing to the whole time. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul talks about kind of the Jewish holy days and Sabbath. And he says this. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That is, Jesus brings true Sabbath rest to our souls, not just one day a week, but every moment of every day for all eternity. I love the way Dane Ortland puts it. He says, he is that of which the Sabbath is a shadow. Jesus is the shadow caster. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He lets the frenetic RPMs of the heart slow down into calm sanity. And no external circumstance can threaten that rest as we look to him. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is the giver of true and lasting rest for our souls. So in light of that, 
reality about who Jesus is. Think about the situation of this man with the withered hand. Now, we don't know exactly what was wrong with his hand, but the word withered, it could also be translated as wasted. So his right hand, whatever was wrong with it, it was completely useless. So he was extremely limited in life. His disability meant that no doubt he couldn't work. He had trouble providing for himself, defending himself. He couldn't do much in life. And so this moment with Jesus, which restored his hand, did much more. It restored his whole life back to him. So maybe you've been listening to this sermon and maybe it's even been bothering you that I've been talking so much about rest and so little about what we're supposed to do. You think, yes, there's a lot of talk about rest, but is there any place for work? Doesn't God have actual requirements for our lives? And if that's you, I'm very glad you asked. Because think about this. Jesus healed this man's hand. So now what? Now he has the ability to serve God and serve other people more fully than he was able to before. This this Sabbath day miracle, it gave him great rest and relief, but it also gave him his life back, a life that can now be used to love the Lord and love his neighbors. So yes, the New Testament often describes our lives as Christians as labor, effort, striving, discipline, hard work. But here's the real question, the deeper question. Are we working for rest or are we working from rest? Do we work for rest or do we work from rest? Rest. Now, this isn't just wordplay. This isn't just semantics. This is the difference between despair and delight, between fear and joy, between slavery and freedom. We don't work for our rest. We work from a place of rest. So let me give you an example. I don't think at this time we need to get into the debate about Sabbath observance today, whether the fourth commandment still applies to new covenant Christians. If the Sabbath on the seventh day has turned into the Lord's day on the first, that's a big discussion. I would encourage you to come to your own conclusion on that. But think about this as an illustration under the old way of Moses. The seventh day was the day of rest. So you're working all week long, hoping to get to the Sabbath. It's kind of a religious way of living for the weekend. Six days of work leads to one day of rest. You're trying to to earn that reward, to enter into that Sabbath. You're working for rest. But in the gospel, we're called to something different. We're called to work from rest. So in the new way of Christ, we begin our week with rest. The first day of the week, today, is the Lord's day. And out of that starting point of rest, out of that foundation, we live the next six days in service to God. So we begin with rest. And that rest energizes us for the work that God would have us to do. 
So Jesus is the giver of rest. And if you're in Christ, you have that rest already. It's a free gift. It's a a present reality. In Jesus, you have already found rest for your soul. And so now that blood-bought gift of rest can be used to energize and fuel your life of faith and obedience. I mean, this is what we talk about all the time here at River Oaks, that, that grace leads to good works. That the indicative leads to the imperative. That we obey out of new affections for Christ. That the commandments of God are not burdensome because the joy of the Lord is our strength. So you don't work for rest to earn that. You work from rest that's already been freely given to you. Think back to the journal entries of Samuel Johnson. He were... We heard that earlier. For decades, he struggled with laziness and prayerlessness, but he didn't give up. He kept going. He said, despair is criminal. He persevered. How? Well, in Christ, he had a starting place of rest. His eternal destiny was fixed by Christ's success, not by his failures. His standing before God was based on Christ's finished work on his behalf, not his unfinished work. So he could keep going. He could keep persevering. And you see, when we talk about rest, rest is not inactivity. Rest isn't being lazy and lethargic. When you have soul rest as your starting point, as your firm foundation, that is the fuel that empowers you to love and serve the Lord. So if you feel like you're entering another year of plotting, if you feel like you should be farther along by now as a Christian, if it seems like you're making the same resolutions year after year and you're just barely squeaking by, Jesus invites you to keep working from rest because he is the giver of your rest. And this gift of rest, it's a free gift to us, but it is not cheap. This gift is more costly than we can ever imagine. Did you notice verse 11? And the Pharisees response, Jesus has just restored the man's hand, but they, the Pharisees, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So even this early in Christ's ministry, the Pharisees were already planning with murderous intent what they might do to him. Jesus had asked them a question. Is it better to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And they don't answer in this passage. But they give their answer a few years later. They decide to do harm. They decide to destroy life. They'll take the Lord of the Sabbath and they'll arrest him and falsely accuse him and condemn him and mock him and spit upon him and beat him and flog him and crucify him and execute him and kill him. But then... Moments after his death, 
There's a fascinating detail. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 23, the end of this gospel. Now, Jesus has just died. Joseph of Arimathea has asked if he could bury the body of Christ. And then we hear this. Look at verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now this is absolutely astounding. The body of Jesus rested in the tomb 24 hours on the Sabbath day. So just as God had finished his work of creation in six days and then rested on the Sabbath, so Jesus finished his work of redemption on the cross and now he rests on the seventh day. On the cross, he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And after completing all the work that was necessary to save his people, he rested from his labor. And the Lord of the Sabbath was laid to rest on the Sabbath. So even in his burial, he fulfills the law. He fulfills the Sabbath. But that's not the end of the story. Luke 24 and verse 1, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb and they didn't find his body. Because on the very first Lord's day, he rose from the dead in triumph. And now the Lord of the Sabbath is alive forevermore, and he will give rest to all who come to him in faith. So if you're here, and if you haven't yet come to faith in Christ, if you haven't put all your hope in him, I want you to know that Jesus' invitation to rest still stands. He doesn't ask anything of you. He doesn't ask you to do anything. Instead, he only asks you to rest in what he's done for you. To cease your working and enter into his rest. Because it's not about your work. It's about his work. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done for you. His life was destroyed so that your life could be saved. And now he invites each and every one of us to experience true and lasting rest for our souls. And for us as believers, this is the message, the glorious gospel that we need to be reminded of over and over again. And that's exactly why the Lord of the Sabbath has given us the Lord's Supper. This bread is given as a symbol of his body broken for us. The cup, a sign of his blood shed for us. And I love how Richard Barcelos describes the purpose of this sacramental feast. He says, The Lord's Supper is a means of grace for the weak, 
not a reward for the obedient. Again, we don't work for rest. We work from rest. So this table, it isn't a reward for your good behavior this past week. No, this table is a lavish feast of mercy for those who know they don't deserve it. These elements are a means of grace that God uses to give us rest and refreshment and restoration so that we can leave this place living a life for the glory of God. Jesus gave his body and blood on the cross. He, he gives us the bread and the cup because Jesus is the giver of rest. So I pray that as you eat and drink in the presence of God today, that your experience and enjoyment of this true and lasting rest would only grow more deep and more rich and more full. So you don't need to be a member of River Oaks to come to this table. All who are in Christ are welcome. But that, that means you do have to have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ alone as your only hope of being reconciled to God. And God's word gives us both a warning and a promise regarding this table. That this is a covenant meal for God's covenant people. So if your faith is not in Christ this morning, I warn you not to partake. The Holy Spirit through Paul gave us a warning not to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. But if you are among God's people, if you are relying on Christ alone for salvation, then you are warmly welcome to partake and to eat and drink blessing upon yourself. We do ask that you would be in right standing with your local church if you're visiting with us. If you're not sure exactly what that means, I'll be up front. The elders will be up front. We'd love to talk that through with you. And the way just practically that communion will work this morning is we will go down row by row. Please wait until the row ahead of you has gotten their elements and then you can come up and we will take the elements back to our seat and wait to take them together in just a few minutes. So let me pray for us. Um, as I do, I'll go ahead and invite the worship team up. I'll invite the elders up who will be serving communion. So, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this Holy Supper, this great Thanksgiving feast, this table of blessing. We know that Christ is here among us, both as our host who serves us and as the feast itself who nourishes us. And as we eat and drink by faith, help us to enjoy our communion and our fellowship and our intimacy with you and with the body and blood of our Lord. Just as this food and drink becomes part of us in a sense, help us to remember that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And as we who are many eat this one bread, help us to become one in greater unity and harmony and fellowship with one another. So Holy Spirit, lead us now in word and sacrament to enter into the true and lasting rest of Christ. And help us to be strengthened, to labor joyfully for the kingdom of Christ, which shall have no end. And we ask this for your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.